you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be in 1 Kings 19 today. If you're new, if, uh, if you're here because your kid came to Vacation Bible School and you typically go to another uh, home church, thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us as brothers and sisters in Christ. One of my all-time favorite realities is that our family is not just in this building. Our family is anyone who's been redeemed in the blood and forgiveness of Jesus, and uh, we just welcome you here. We're so thankful. Uh, I thought I would give, because it's been a while, a quick explanation if you're new and you don't know what any of this is. This is kind of our marker for what we're trying to do as a church this year, our focus points. So we have five key focuses on what we want to be as a church. So the green is representative of life-giving. We want to be a life-giving church. We want the people that come here to experience the life of Christ, to experience the abundant life that Jesus offered. Uh, we want to be a gospel-rooted church. We believe that you can only have life through the burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and putting your faith in that. And that when you believe in that, you have access to the Holy Spirit. That's the why. We talked about this back all through May, and this is kind of what our sermon series is still kind of boiling on a little bit is who is the Holy Spirit? How do we listen to him better? And then in September, October, November, we'll be talking about blue, which is community, how we exist to live in community together. And then orange is belong, that we want to bring more people to belong to Christ. And so the general idea is when you have an experience in the church where the church was life-giving, someone maybe reminded you of the gospel, uh, maybe you felt just empowered by the Holy Spirit in a way that was different. You did something that you otherwise uh, wouldn't do, uh, that you move a marble into the tube, and so as the year goes on, you get to see what we've, so that's kind of the general idea of what we've been doing. So we're building on this idea of, of Holy Spirit this week, and I'll explain that. But it's always amazed me, and college students, I need your help here to see if maybe I'm off in left field and I'm wrong here, but I'm curious. It's always amazed me how people can take a simple human function, put a bunch of fancy words on it, overcomplicate it and turn it into a college class. Have you guys ever had like that type of thing? I'm convinced that as good as college is and as good as some colleges can be, at least like 12% of college is taking a simple concept that almost everyone innately knows and understands and then overcomplicating that concept and making 19-year-olds stay up all night cramming for a final over it. Is that accurate for you college students? Is that your experience at all? Cade's nodding his head yes. I'm like, Cade, you're, you're almost there. You'll know it soon. He's already done some of it, right? So when I was in college, I had to take a class called Interpersonal Communications. That's 10 syllables, Interpersonal Communications. That's like Shakespeare iambic pentameter. Let me tell you what this class was all about, how to talk to each other. Interpersonal communication is just how to talk to one another. I had to take this for, for my major, and uh, I, I'm going to give you a taste of this class. Are you ready? By the way, I only took two communications classes. I am not a communications expert, but I think I understand this one somewhat well because like, I talk to people on an everyday basis. That's part of life. Um, so uh, our professor, who is a PhD in interpersonal communications, because you can get a PhD in that, this is the, the slide that he showed on the first day of class. 
Um, if you can't read it, it's all about how our conversations, they happen in a psychological context. And in this psychological context, there is a sender that is encoding a message, and then they are sending it via a, a channel of message. And then someone else, the receiver, they're decoding that message, and then they got to encode their response so that they can do a feedback channel This is a college course. People pay money to learn stuff like this, right? I I just always thought that that was really funny. But here's the part that that really is interesting, that there's this one particular thing called noise, and that's representative of these like yellow stars type thing. And what noise is, by the definition, is anything that might get in the way of the conveyed message from one person to another person person. So uh, noise is what interrupts or intercepts our message that I'm talking about. It's sirens wailing outside. It's the internal thought of, I hope we can finally get out of here before noon because I've had to wait at the restaurant for the last month. And I just really, noise can do that. It intercepts, it interrupts. And I believe that noise can do it not only this way, but noise can intercept and interrupt what God is trying to say to us. In fact, this is what the entire sermon is going to be about today. Uh, Back in May, like I mentioned, we did a whole sermon series over the Holy Spirit. Um, And so we made the point that if most of us were honest, we would probably admit, at least I would, that my experience with the Holy Spirit is, is underwhelming and not what I expected it to be. That when I go back and I read the Gospels and I go back and I read the story of Acts and I see the Spirit doing really cool, awesome things, most of my experience with the Holy Spirit is is not like that. And we ask the question, well, why is that? And I think you could put a lot of different answers on that. But one of the answers we landed on is that we just live in a time that it's difficult to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. So this last week and this week and next week, we're going to be talking about how do we better pay attention to the person of the Holy Spirit. So last week we said that one of the things we have to do is we have to just slow down. Life is busy. It's chaotic. We're distracted into oblivion that we have to make point after point to just slow down the cadence of life to listen to what God has to say. And today we're going to talk about finding quiet in a world of noise. So here's the the entire point of the sermon. If you write this down and you get nothing else, you got it. It's great. Congratulations. To pay attention, we must find quiet in noise. To pay attention, we must find quiet in noise. Now, I think generally speaking, uh, and there's probably more arguments you can make, but I think generally there are two types of noise in life. There is external noise, which that's pretty easy to understand. External noise is any type of noise that comes from outside of ourselves. So it's, it's the noise coming from your television, the noise coming from your office phone, noise coming from the news blurb, noises that's coming from the 37 billboards between here and Clovis that you've seen 37 times, but you can't remember what a single one of those billboards say because your body's conditioned yourself to start ignoring noise like that. It's the 17 texts on your cell phone that you woke up to and you're like, why is the boss texting me at 7 in the morning? This is noise. Do you experience noise on a daily basis? I do. 
it, it's all over the place. It's all around us. And I'm not saying that those things in themselves are innately bad, although there are times that I long for that day and age back to where, like, if someone wanted to get a hold of you, you had to be in office. Otherwise, there was no talking. Like, got to call my office phone. Otherwise, you can't. You, like, they would call your home phone, and you just wouldn't answer. And like, I don't know where they are. Do you guys remember that time? I was a child for that time, so I don't remember it all that well. But I do remember part, part of it. Um, but, but do this for me. If you get the chance this week and you're just really interested in all of this, go do a quick study through the Bible on, on the concept of God and stillness or God and quiet or God and silence. And what you'll find, I can, I can just go ahead and spoil this because I've already done it this week for you, but what you'll find is God almost never communicates through chaos and noise. God almost never acts through chaos and noise. You might find a couple stories here and there where you can make some arguments. Uh, you know, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, when God tells Joshua and the Israelites to march around the city and then blow their trumpets. You're like, look, God's there. He's, he's working through the noise. Maybe. Or you can make the argument of God and Gideon and calling Gideon's army to march into the Midianites and break pots and again blow trumpets. Or, or maybe you can make the argument of Jesus encountering Paul on the way to Damascus where he strikes Paul blind and speaks out loud from heaven. Paul, why do you, or Saul, why do you persecute me? But I think if you go back to those stories and look a little bit closer, you'll find that even those stories are either preceded by times of quiet silence. So Joshua chapter 1, God calls Joshua and says, hey, you need to be a man that meditates on my word day and night. What does that mean? Joshua, in order to get to the point that you take on Jericho, you need to spend some time every day quietly reflecting on me and my word. Or if you go and you look at the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, you'll find that Gideon is quietly threshing wheat in a wine press because he's scared of who might see him. That's when God encounters him in that quiet time. Or it's followed by a time of quiet reflection and silence. So Paul, spending a few days after this encounter on the road to Damascus where he spends a few days with some fellow believers, then he heads off on a journey of his own. He says that he goes and travels to Arabia. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright believes that Paul may have even been doing his own kind of personal Mount Sinai journey where he went and just spent who knows how long in silent meditation over this concept of Jesus as Messiah and Savior and what that meant to him and his calling and mission as a Pharisee. See, I would argue that far more often in Scripture you will find pattern after pattern of God being found in quiet places or calling his people to be still or be calm. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter one. At the very beginning of scripture, when there is just God, in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth, and then verse two, and there's this abyssal chaos waters. It's called the Tahom in Hebrew. And then the next sentence after the Tahom is there, it says that the spirit of God rested on the Tahom. We did this back in January, if you remember, if you were here. And the Tahom, it changes Hebrew words, became Hamayim, chaos waters to still waters. The mere presence of the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1 takes chaos and makes it calm. That God is a God of stillness and quiet. Or his promise to Moses when the Israelites are fleeing from Egypt, being chased down from Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 14, when God says, hey, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to, anybody know? Be still. Or the very classic Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. 
So if God's most normal method of speaking to us is in the quiet, still place, could it be that we rarely hear from God because we are rarely quiet? A couple years ago, Microsoft did a survey, and one of the questions on the survey was, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my cell phone, yes or no. 77% of young adults answered the question, Yes. 77% of people admit that when nothing is occupying my time, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. The second quietness approaches, the first thing I've been conditioned to do is, I mean, I've had this thing I said last week since I was 14 years old. Not this exact one. I've had the same number since I was 14 years old. I've spent longer in my life with one of these than without one of these. It's just innately instilled as like an extra appendage of my body. The second there's quietness, I pull it out and do this. I'm waiting in line at the grocery store, waiting at the doctor's office, waiting at a coffee appointment for that person to show up, and they're three minutes late. Why are they three minutes late? Is this anybody else? Is this what you, like I'm curious. Back in the 90s, what did you do when you were on a plane and like you exhausted the Sky Mall magazine? Did you look out the window and count clouds? Like, that sounds so boring to me. We've become just so encaptured by busyness and noise that it is foreign for us to understand quiet. We live in a time that quiet is almost non-existent in our world. See, finding external quiet is nearly impossible in a day when every waking moment of our time can be filled with distracting noise. In fact, your phone, companies that, that run Instagram and Facebook, they have intentionally curated algorithms to send notifications to your phone because they know that statistically speaking, you're more likely to click this one than not click that one. And anytime you click it, they get some ad revenue from you. So they, they curate it for you so that your phone quite literally becomes addicting. They've done studies over this that the dopamine levels of getting a like on Instagram or Facebook is like the new version of drugs for the young generation in some ways. Welcome to the noise of the world that just encompasses us. Seeking external quiet is like the modern equivalent of going and living as a monastic monk in a cave. It's foreign. But it is delightfully normal to God. Quiet is delightfully normal to God. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, pretty famous book, one of his more famous ones, where it's uh, this, this work, obviously fiction, but uh, he writes it as if it's a senior kind of chief demon writing to an underling demon about uh, instructions for how to torment and distract and destroy the world. And one of the things that Screwtape writes to this underling demon is he says, Satan's realm is a kingdom of noise. And he goes on to say, and one day we will make the whole universe into a universe of noise. So how do we rid ourselves of external noise? And honestly, I would argue that that's easy-ish. Be careful with easy-ish. You know, if you want to rid yourself of this noise so that you don't pull it out out of your pocket every second, go put it in another room. It'll work, I promise. You won't, you won't be able to get it, at least intentionally. Turn the TV off. Silence the music, wait for the kids to go to sleep or get up before they get up. Go outside, except for if your neighbors are like mine and they still have fireworks because they spent like a thousand bucks and they just keep shooting off fireworks at like 
12 in the afternoon. Why? Honestly, it may seem countercultural and a bit weird, but finding and seeking external noise or, or si- external silence isn't all that hard. It's the other one that's a little bit harder. So if there's external noise, there is also internal noise. You're tracking along with me pretty well. Internal noise is that noise inside of us. It's, it's the, um, in the words of John Mark Comer, he wrote a book about all of this that's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I've derived a lot of this from that. But he writes in that book that mental chatter, that, that internal noise is that mental chatter that just never shuts up. It's the endless running commentary in our heads that narrates everything. And this is where seeking quiet, in my experience, gets way harder. Because we all have this kind of internal monologue running through our minds, and this internal monologue, because we have this thing instilled into us after Adam and Eve fell called sin, that takes our internal monologue and just turns it toxic so quick. So what we do is we'll lay in bed at night and we'll be in this kind of self-thought mode and all of a sudden our brains will start running through worst case scenarios. You guys ever do this? You lay in bed at night and run through worst case scenarios in your head? Like what if, what if I lose that person? Like what if I wake up tomorrow and Haley's just like not there? I don't even know the password to get in the bank account. Like you guys have these types of conversations? What if what if I get fired tomorrow? What if the economy dips even further and I can't find work? How am I? What, what, if, what if none of my friends really like me? What if my dog runs away? I, I don't know. You guys lay in bed and think about things like this. Or on the other side is like the, the, the polar opposite of that, and that's like fantasy land. And, and instead of like what if, it's like if only, if only I was married, life would be so much better. It would be exactly how I envision it to be. If only I made more money. If only I could drive that car and have that house. If only I was more attractive. If only I was smarter. And you just lay. And, and any time that the external noise fades, the internal noise starts to boil up. And this is what you find. Does anyone else have this experience or is this just me? And I can't help but wonder... Could it be that we've allowed external noise to become so loud because we desperately want to drown out the internal noise that's haunting our minds and our thoughts every time the world gets a bit too quiet? You see, internal quiet is far harder to find, but when the Bible says, be still and know that I am God, it means both externally and internally. So how do we find internal quiet? I think historically, the church, we love to say stuff like, read your Bible and pray. But when every square inch of my life is drenched in noise and distraction, most of the time when I try to add in a couple extra minutes of prayer, my, my prayers come out like this. I don't know, I got a little video to show you. Your prayer ever come out like that to God sometimes? And he's like, what am I even doing? Like I'm laying in bed, I'm trying to pray, and my brain just keeps repeating the same thing, and I'm like stutter firing prayers off to God. Or, or when you try to read your Bible, you find yourself doing that thing where your eyes are following the text, but your brain's not really comprehending what it's saying. 
And what I've found is that my problem with noise is far more complex and deep than I would often like to admit. So what do we do? This is where I want to go to 1 Kings 19. And really, what I want to do today is do kind of a case study through a story in the Old Testament. To look at the prophet Elijah and look at his response to some pretty deafening external and internal noise in his life. And look at what he does. And then at the end, we'll tie this all back in and talk about what God is calling us to do with it. But in order to do this, I need to set up a little bit of context for you because it, it really matters. First Kings 19, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting human passages of Scripture in, in the Bible because logistically, it doesn't make any sense except for when we read it, our humanity connects with it. We're like, that's so real to me, even though it doesn't make sense. Let me see if I can explain that. Uh, just the chapter before this. Elijah is the prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. So uh, after Solomon is king, he kind of squanders the kingdom in some rebellion. After he dies, his sons go to war. There's a giant civil war. It splits the kingdom into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel is the far worst one. They have no good kings when you read through the book of Kings. But Elijah in particular is a prophet to the king Ahab. And the Bible is clear over and over again that Ahab is this just horrible king. He leads people to worship idols. He's married to this woman that's just downright insane named Jezebel. She's a Canaanite woman that has convinced him and the whole nation to worship Baal and other idols. She has no problem killing anyone that questions her. She is just this insane person. And chapter 18 is kind of the high point of Elijah's confrontation with Ahab and Jezebel. And so he goes to them and he challenges them and he challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest to see which God answers. You probably know this story pretty well. They head up to Mount Carmel. Uh, Elijah says, hey, you guys get the altar ready, put some, some meat on it, and then you guys, you pray to Baal and see if Baal answers. And if he doesn't, then I'll pray to Yahweh, my God, and whichever God answers is the real true God. So the prophets of Baal spend all day just crying out, and Baal doesn't answer. There's no response. And so finally, Elijah walks up, and he utters this really simple, easy prayer, and just says, essentially, Yahweh, show your power, and fire falls from heaven, and it absorbs and just burns up the water and the altar and the offering and all of this stuff. And Israel turns around, and they see this, and they cry out, Yahweh, he is Lord. Yahweh, he is Lord. And it's this moment of incredible celebration and then we get to chapter 19. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to just break it down a couple verses at a time. We'll talk through it and then bounce back into it in and out. So we're going to start right here in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the word or with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And already we want to put a little pause here and say, Surely Elijah, who has just saw fire fall from heaven, can say like, Oh, yeah, what are you going to do, Jezebel? What are you going to do? Did you see what my God literally just did? But look at Elijah's response. Verse 3, And then Elijah became afraid, and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. So he gets all the way out of the country. Elijah flees Ahab's jurisdiction. 
And he went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he sat down in a, uh, under a broom tree, and he prayed that, his, that he might die. And he said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. So right here, we find just this crash. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, Elijah has encountered threatening external noise from Queen Jezebel, internal noise from fear and uncertainty that's just plaguing him, and it corrodes his prayer life. I mean, look at his prayer here compared to his prayer in chapter 18, verse 36, if you get some time. Totally different prayers. And we have to ask, what's the reason And I think the only thing that we can understand is that the noise bombarding Elijah's life turns him into a reactive, emotionally unstable, broken man. Because this is what noise does. It makes us reactive. Where we find ourselves outraged or worried about what the world around us is doing and and it changes the feelings within us and then that destroys our ability to live in deep connection with God because we're so concerned over here with what might be happening that we think surely nothing good can happen if our political system isn't fixed. Surely nothing good can happen if we don't fix our economy. And all of a sudden, rather than giving attention to God, we're just constantly focused here. And every news blurb, every output of the media just consumes us. And it makes us angry and irritable. And it leaks out in the way we treat one another. And does this feel like modern-day America to you? Because it does to me. Might it be that noise has just become so abundant? Abundant that it's turned us into reactive, emotionally unstable, broken people. And so Elijah goes to God. He does the one thing he knows, but even his prayer to God is a broken prayer. God, I can't do this anymore. Just take me now. Then in verse 5, what's the solution? Suddenly an angel touched him, and the angel told him, Get up and eat. And he looked, and there was uh, at his head, it was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey will be too much for you. And I love this solution. It's so human. It's so good. Because God's solution for Elijah is essentially, here, have a snack, drink some water, and take a nap. I'm just saying, like, when you're looking for solutions to your problem in the Bible, snack, water, and nap is definitely in the answers. Like, it is among viable answers in Scripture. Eat a snack, drink some water, take a nap. It's right, it's right there. I love that. It's so, it's so human. But, but also, I love what the solution is not. The angel doesn't come to Elijah and say, now, Elijah, you know, you really should be praying more, Elijah. Elijah, you really need to get yourself and get to the temple, You need to spend some time at the temple. Uh, Elijah, you should read more of the Torah. If you would just spend some more time in the Torah, it would fix. No, the noise bombarding Elijah's life, the solution that's first offered by God's messenger himself is eat, drink, sleep. Even the superhero prophet who just a few days before called fire down from heaven is not superhero enough to be exempt from the basic human need of food and rest. It is that human Welcome to the Bible. And then even there's this 40-day journey where he's going to travel to Mount Horeb 
If you don't know scripture well, uh, this, this mountain is referenced in other places as a mountain you probably know better called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where Israel encounters God for the first time, where they learn that God's name is Yahweh, where they learn the Ten Commandments, where they receive the Torah, where they are, are nailed together in a covenant relationship with God as a nation. This all happens at Mount Sinai. And I have to wonder, if Elijah is traveling to Mount Sinai, the text doesn't say this, I'm just kind of reading through it, if that Elijah goes to this because he's looking for an encounter with God himself. Saying, that's where my ancestors encountered God. Maybe if I can get there, I can shut off this noise and encounter God myself. So, verse 8, he got up, he ate, he drank. Then on the strength from the food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, and he entered a cave there and spent the night. Love this rest, eat, drink, draw close to God, sleep, and start your journey. Then we get into verse 9b, and suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think it's a question of, Elijah, if you were honest, what's taken you so far away from your assignment in Israel? What's brought you all the way to this cave? And Elijah replies in verse 10, I've been very zealous for the Lord, God of armies, but Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've tore down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They are looking for me to take my life. And so God said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. It's this time of just venting. Elijah just vents, and some of it is true. I've been zealous for you. Israel has been rebellious absolutely. Some of it is just completely false. I'm the only one left. We'll find out here in a little bit. That's just not true, Elijah. But essentially, Elijah's answer is, God, I want out. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I don't want to deal with a stubborn king and his pure evil wife. I don't want to have to live in fear of my own life. The internal noise boiled up in Elijah is starting to overflow out of him to God. And it's this concoction of good and right and legitimate problems and the total lies and self-talk of his own internal noise and doubt. And what's God's response to call Elijah an idiot and put him in his place? Hey, you're lying, Elijah. No, God gives Elijah what he wants, an encounter with the Almighty, but it's not how you would expect. Verse 11, he said, Go and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And at that moment, the Lord passed by. And a great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. And Elijah heard it, and he wrapped his face in his mantle and went over and stood at the entrance of the cave. I love God's response. It's a response that demonstrates God's power and God's control through earth-shattering wind, which I think he does that here in Portalis quite a lot. That's like his main communication to Portalis, uh, and then just through moving the earth itself, and then through a raging fire, but then he speaks, not through any of the powerful moments, but through the whisper. And it's almost as if God is saying, Elijah, I don't need a huge declaration of power to demonstrate my will and desire. All I need is quiet. So then God repeats the question, Elijah, why are you here? 
And in verse 14, Elijah repeats his answer, although I have to wonder if Elijah's answer is given in just a bit of a different tone this time, more of a question, more with an understanding that none of his feelings have changed God's power over the world and that God was soon to give an answer. What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for the Lord of armies, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone left. They're looking for me to take my life. And so God responds with commission and reassurance. And the Lord said to him, go and return the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you will anoint Haziel over king of Aram. You will anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, over Abel Maholah as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And finally, finally, after 40 days and 40 nights of walking, a night in this cave in Horeb, a day underneath the tree, in the wilderness, God gives his commission, and he says, hey, I'm still working. Elijah, go anoint Haziel, king of Aram, Jehu, king of Israel, Elisha as your own successor. It's this full demonstration that God himself will still move and control events, even when the internal noise in Elijah feels like too much. And then God gives some reassurance to Elijah's self-talk. Elijah, you said you're the only one left. Let me just go ahead and tell you, there are 7,000 people I could choose to do this job. They've not bowed to Baal. They've not worshiped him in any way. You are not the only one. You've just missed the reality because of abundant noise, both internally and externally. What Elijah needed was to find quiet. So how long does this take? Because I can already hear your objections, because I would be giving the same objections. Philip, I don't have 40 days and 40 nights to go wander the wilderness. And even if I did, I wouldn't survive. Like, how do I go find this quiet when it seems like my cadence of life will not allow for it? And I get it. But I would also just come to this side and remind you, you do need quiet. God designed you to need quiet, both internal and external quiet. You need to slow down. You need rest. Pastor David will be preaching about that next week. What does it look like to take time and rest? So even if it's just waking up and drinking your cup of coffee in silence, making sure to do that before you ever pick up your phone, maybe if it's taking 10 minutes after putting the kids to bed just to turn off the TV, put away your phone and say, God, it's been a long day, but I'm here, just me and you. See, far too often we want to hear God on our own terms. We want this life hack model of Christianity that just says, get up and read like a two-minute, one-page devotional and pray, okay, God, what do you want me to do today? Well, Moses didn't yell at the rock when he donated water from the rock, so I probably shouldn't yell at my barista when they're slow with the coffee, but Moses did hit the rock with a staff. Does that mean I can hit my bar- No, that's probably not right. I'll figure it out on my way to work, God. We'll catch up later. Like, that's the equivalent of doing six setups and being like, do I have washboard abs yet? Now, on the other side of the pendulum, I'm not saying that you need to have an hour a day that you just spend in silence. 
But what I'm saying is that if you want God to radically transform your life, if you want to begin to hear from the Holy Spirit, it will probably demand a revolutionary way of life that looks far more like Jesus and far less like the American dream. It will demand intentional times of quiet listening. And so I would just ask you, when's the last time you've done that with God? When's the last time you just approached the throne of God and quietly listened? Just sat outside on your porch, inside on your couch, and just said, God, it's me and you. I'm here. I'm listening. And listen for that quiet whisper as you shed off the external and internal noise, taking it all to God. Somebody's saying, Philip, is this just like practicing meditation? Like that's what Buddhists or Taoists do. And I would just say there's a key difference. Because in Buddhism or Taoism, it's all about emptying yourself of desire. And that's always been interesting to me because that's a self-defeating cause. Because if you take like two seconds to think about it, if, if you're trying to empty yourself of desire and your main desire is to empty yourself of desire, then you desire to be emptied of desire and it doesn't work. It's humanly impossible. The Bible provides a much more realistic model where we come to God, not emptying ourselves from desire, but taking our desires to God and giving it to him and trusting that he can use those desires, he can refute those desires, he can do greater things than those desires ever could. This is what he does with Elijah. More importantly, this is what he does with Jesus. Think about the garden. That Jesus, before he goes to the cross, goes to God and he gives that classic prayer God, I don't want this. Let this cup pass. Jesus pours out his desire to the Father, and then he repeats that with another prayer, and he says, yet not my will but yours. What Jesus is doing is he's getting away and shedding off the external noise, and he's going before his Father and presenting the internal noise and saying, but I trust you are greater than this. And God does not give Jesus his desire. Instead, he sends his son to the cross where Jesus dies, because the desire of God was that every man could be saved. That anyone that would look to that cross and proclaim in faith that they trust the name of Jesus might be redeemed from their sins and saved from this noise, both externally and internally, to a God who speaks in quiet. So how do you find external and internal quiet? And I would just say you intentionally curate it before God. You turn off your phone, you turn off your TV, you quiet the music, and then you just vent. Let God see the stuff boiled up inside of you and bottled in. Let him see the things that are overflowing from you. And trust that God's ability to do far greater things and to bring you rest and quiet is greater than your own ability to ever drown it out yourself. Maybe you need to do that right here. Maybe life has just been hectic and crazy. And you're like, Philip, I don't know what to do. Maybe you can just come up and pray and take a few minutes. God, it's just me and you. You can do that right from your seats if you want. There's nothing you need to do just, just to take this time and say, God, I trust you. And maybe you've never known that gospel of grace at the cross and you just want to come put your faith in that. I'll be right here. I would love to talk with you more about it. But maybe, just maybe, if you know Christ, you're not hearing from the Holy Spirit because you are just in so much noise. And it's time to give up both the external and internal noise. Father God, we're thankful for what you've said and what you've done. We're grateful for stories like Elijah's that are just so real, so true to us. 
that we know these examples of coming off a really amazing moment and just crashing into chaos. And yet that you still stand as God. So even when the external noise is blaring that everything's not okay and the world's crumbling around us, and even when the internal noises are welling up within and saying that we, we got to silence this through whatever means necessary, that you are still the small, quiet whisper saying, trust me. God, would you make First Baptist Church that does that regularly, that we might begin to hear from your spirit in incredible ways. It's in Christ's name we pray.